Hello, and welcome to the Auditory Chronicles podcast, a monthly program bringing you short tales for your listening pleasure. I'm your host, John McKenzie. In this episode, we bring you an adaptation of a short story published in 1922. We begin with a train conductor who was the very best, and the very worst. From the Ground Up, adapted from the short story by Leland S. Chester. Bill Thorne was the best conductor on the Rock Hill Division of the TLNG. He knew more about the safe and prompt movement of trains than any other man on the division, and he exercised that knowledge with a precision and directness that was next to uncanny. Bill had risen rapidly from brakeman to conductor and on up through the classified freight runs to the blue uniform of an extra passengerman. But success had gone to his head. No member of his crew could get along with him. They were constantly deserting his runs for more congenial working mates, and when, perchance, some man endured his arrogance and remained, that man sooner or later was turned in and removed on some charge or other. After turning in a particularly able brakeman for no more reprehensible reason than that the man had talked back to him, a clean-looking young fellow of twenty-one or two, intelligent, industrious, and anxious to learn, was assigned to Bill's run. Bill looked him over critically and sneered. What's your name? My name's Ewing, the young fellow returned smilingly. Edwin L. Ewing. All right, Ewing, Bill snapped. If you stay on this run, you'll hit the ball. Try to remember that. Yes, sir, smiled Ewing. That's what I'm here for. The run was one of the best and fastest on the division, pulling only livestock and other perishable freight. During the run, Bill got an order to pick up three cars of livestock at a station a few miles farther on. He handed the order to Ewing with the remark, Pick up these cars at Hadley while I'm getting the bills from the agent. And he added with a sneer, See if you can do it right. Yes, sir, said Ewing pleasantly. The livestock cars were on the stock track at the loading chute. A passing extra had kicked two empty cars in on top of them. To add the livestock cars to the train, Ewing first brought out the empties, went back for the loads, coupled them ahead of the empties, and set the two back on the stock track. He made two extra switches that a more experienced brakeman would not have made. Bill Thorne came running out just as the engine was coming out on the main from the last operation. Of all the brainless, useless, muddle-headed dubs, he shouted, throwing his arms and swearing with the fluency of long practice. Didn't you know enough to bring all those cars out at once, leave the loads on the main, and simply kick the empties back? I know it now, returned the brakeman, but I didn't think of it until I was almost through. You should have told me. That's the trouble with you and about nine-tenths of the other fatheads on this road, Thorn raged. You never think. You expect someone else to do it for you. If a thought should ever get into that dome of yours, it would split wide open. Now couple up that train if you know enough, and let's go. Instead of darting confusedly about his work as most students were wont to do under Bill's tirades, Ewing straightened, placed his hands on his hips, and grinned calmly up at him. Say, he asked, do you think such talk tends to promote efficiency among your men? Bill moved forward, threateningly. No more of your lip, young man. You couple up that train as I told you. This is your last trip with me. You can bet it is, said Ewing, still calm. You'll get another man next trip, all right. I'll see to that. When I was called for this run, he went on, without giving Thorne a chance to break in, I was told to steer clear of you, that you had the swell head so bad that nobody could get along with you, and that I'd last only a trip or two anyhow. 
You're a good railroad man, though. They all give you credit for that, and I was glad to get on with you so that I could watch you work and learn how you did things. I'm in this game to learn it from the ground up, but I'm of the opinion now that I can learn more from someone with less knowledge of railroading and a little more principle. Bill Thorne sneered. From the ground up? Well, you'd better try the pick and shovel route. That's the only way you'll ever be of any use to a railroad. I'm telling you for the last time, couple up that train. I'm in this game to stay, returned Ewing. Someday, I may be superintendent of this division, he added lightly. And if I am, I'll fire you so thoroughly, you can't even get a job with a pick and shovel. And now, I'll couple your train. Thereafter, for a time, Bill saw Ewing at various points along the road. Sometimes on extras, sometimes on locals. Now and then, on the manifest opposite his own. Then he saw the young man no more, and after a time, he forgot him. Meanwhile, things were happening at the division office. There had been complaints from patrons of the road for incivilities suffered on Bill Thorne's occasional trips as extra passenger conductor. He was summoned to the superintendent's office, and the resulting conference was anything but pleasant. We've about reached our limit with you, Bill, the official told him pointedly. In view of your record, we have tried to ignore your constant scraping with the men, hoping that you might see the utter senselessness of such an attitude and abandon it. But when patrons of the road begin to complain, we have no choice in the matter. When the public pays a corporation for service, it wants service and not abuse from an employee. As a matter of discipline, Bill, we have decided to retire you from passenger work for at least one year and assign you to the chain gang. The chain gang, as all railroad men know, is made up of crews which have no regular runs. Their work consists chiefly of moving the long, heavy trains of coal, lumber, and other slow freight. They are called out in order of their arrival at a division point, sometimes at noon, sometimes at midnight, any hour they are needed. Bill had been through all this years before. He detested the slow, heavy trains, long, irregular hours, and uncertain earnings. Yet there was nothing he could do but accept or resign, and he had no thought of the latter. So, inwardly seething, Bill Thorne took the lowered status. In the chain gang, train and engine crews seldom make two consecutive round trips together. As the brakemen assigned to Bill were chiefly of the boomer type, constantly coming and going, it was not necessary to request a man's removal, or for a man to seek removal of his own accord, as was the case on Bill's previous runs. That was brought about automatically. With the absence of reported friction, the superintendent must have concluded that Bill had at last fallen into his proper niche and that for all concerned, it was best that he remain there well beyond the one disciplinary year. In time, Bill Thorne began to silver at the temples. The long, heavy drags of slow freight, with their attendant irregularity of rest and meals, were beginning to tell upon him. Day by day, at various points along the road, he was met or passed by men who, years before, had been his brakemen. They were now far above him in rank and status, and as a rule, they ignored him. Came a day when Bill Thorne, alone in his ancient caboose creaking jerkily in the wake of a half-mile string of loaded gondolas, grew introspective and took stock of himself. It came to him suddenly that he was a failure. It was ten years now since he had been reduced to the chain gang. Here he was, forty years old, and exactly where he had been sixteen years ago when first promoted to conductor. 
something was wrong, and that something was Bill Thorne. For the first time in his life, he saw himself as he really was, and with the discovery came a stab of self-condemnation. He didn't blame the men for disliking him, nor the superintendent for his act of discipline, now that he understood himself. He wondered that he hadn't been discharged outright. He might even be discharged yet. There was only one course left to him now. Strive with all his might to hold his present job and give them what he could with his scant remuneration. From that moment, Bill Thorne was a changed man. Soon, brakemen were asking to be assigned to his car. Engineers and firemen spoke of him as a prince of a fellow, and although Bill felt that he had delayed this transformation too long, that it could now avail him nothing so far as promotion was concerned, he was, nevertheless, genuinely happy. Then came news that the TLNG had been absorbed by one of the big trunk lines. Antiquated rolling stock was to be replaced with new and improved equipment, and the working conditions were also to be improved. At first, Bill Thorne felt a sense of elation. Perhaps, after all, there was a chance for him. With the official docket swept clean, he might be rewarded with the status to which his long service entitled him. Two months later, a bulletin appeared in the yard office announcing the appointment of a new superintendent. In substance, it read, Mr. Edwin L. Ewing has been appointed superintendent of the Rock Hill Division to succeed Mr. F.J. Morehouse transferred. Bill's heart skipped a beat. Edwin L. Ewing, the new superintendent, was none other than the brakeman he had abused for bungling the little job of switching more than 12 years ago. Was it fate? Coincidence? Or the man's own vengeful contriving that had brought him back here with the authority to fulfill the threat of retaliation made years ago? For several days, Bill Thorne contrived to keep out of Ewing's sight. He dreaded the meeting, not only because he feared the result, but because now that he had come to realize the folly of the old days, he was ashamed of the way he had abused the well-meaning brakeman. When a full month had gone by and he had neither met nor received any communication from the new official, Bill began to breathe easier. Then, upon registering in late one night, he found a letter in the yard office mailbox for him. It was from Ewing, and it requested him to report at the division office. The next morning before leaving home, Bill wrote out his resignation. He'd rob Ewing of that much pleasure anyhow. When Bill Thorne entered the superintendent's office at nine, Ewing swung about in his desk chair and smiled up at him. The man hadn't changed much, Bill thought. He was older, to be sure, but he still had the boyish, self-confident look Thorne remembered. Hello, Thorne, he greeted easily. Sit down. Bill shifted and tried to assume his old arrogance. That won't be necessary, you, Mr. Ewing. I know what I'm here for, and there's no use beating about the bush. Here's my resignation. Ewing took the folded paper, glanced at it, and tossed it to his desk. Well, sit down anyway, for old time's sake, he invited and smiled. Thorne perched on the edge of a chair and eyed the man as unconcernedly as he could force himself to appear. We're having the same thoughts this morning, I imagine, Thorne, Ewing began presently. We're thinking that this old world is a pretty small affair, and that life is short, too, now that we have the occasion to look back upon a certain long past event. We can hardly believe that it has been more than 12 years since we met here on this very division, and we are wondering just how it came about, after all those years, that we should meet again here under present conditions. When I left the TLNG, 
I went with the Great Continental. He continued without giving Bill a chance to reply. I had no thought of ever returning to this road again. The truth of the matter is, Thorne, I came here merely for experience, as I told you that day at Hadley. He smiled reminiscently. I was in the game to learn it from the ground up. And now, after more than twelve years of railroading, I still love it. I am in it heart, body, and soul. I have always believed, Thorne, that if a job is worth having, it is worth doing not only well, but as near perfectly as it is humanly possible to do it. Ewing continued. I have always striven to that end, Thorne. When the Continental absorbed the TL&G, it sent me down here not only because it believed I understood and would carry out its policies, but because it felt that I would do all within my power to gain the respect and goodwill of the men, which, after all, is the big thing. He looked searchingly at Bill Thorne and said, I have often wondered, Bill, where you might be today if you had followed those simple rules. Bill shifted in his chair, looked at Ewing, away again, and stood up. If that's all, Mr. Ewing, he said, I'll be going along. I've been a darn fool most of my life. Nobody knows that better than me. But I don't like to have it rubbed in. I've never forgotten what you said that day. Well, you're the superintendent now, and... He pointed to the folded paper on the desk. There's my resignation. Ewing threw back his head and laughed. Not cynically nor triumphantly, but with a wholeheartedness that brought tears to his eyes. Yes, I remember that too, he said, still laughing. But that's been a long time ago, Thorn, and time is a great eraser of grudges. In striving for bigger and better things, we outgrow our petty peaks and vanities. I understand, Bill, that you have outgrown some things in the last year or so. I've tried to, admitted Bill promptly. If a man's a fool, he'll find it out someday, if he'll stop and look into himself. I did that, and I'm mighty proud of it, even if I did wait too long. I'll be going now, Mr. Ewing. Ewing turned to his desk and took up Bill's resignation. I didn't expect you to do this, Thorn, but since you've elected to do it, and since it is in line with my plans, there's nothing I can do but accept it. As you already know or have heard, the TLNG is to be thoroughly reorganized. Thorn, we no longer have a place for you as a conductor. However, since you were always considered the best conductor on the TLNG and are now one of the most liked, I have taken the liberty, Mr. William Thorne, of recommending that you be promoted to succeed the present trainmaster. Ewing concluded with a boyish grin. We hope you've enjoyed our presentation of From the Ground Up, adapted from the short story by Leland S. Chester, as read by JT. Be sure to join us next month for another tale of mystery and wonder. In the meantime, feel free to visit our website at auditorychronicles.com for an archive of previous episodes, as well as links to our Twitter feed and Facebook page. For Auditory Chronicles, I'm John McKenzie. Thanks for listening.